This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. in this race where I couldn't see a path to accomplishing that goal that I would get out. And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for President of the United States. I know, and I can see it from some of the faces here, that I'm disappointing some people by doing this. People who believe in our message and believe in what we've been doing. I also know, though, it's the right thing for me to do. Because I want to promise you this. I'm going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. Uh, I don't like to speak negatively about anyone. I, I honestly don't like to speak negatively about anybody that chooses to run for office because running for office is a very difficult thing, not only for the person that's doing it, but for their family and for their team, for everybody. You, It, it is tireless. It is not rewarding. It is not glamorous. It is, it, it is very, very difficult. And the people that do this, whether I love them, whether I strongly dislike them, They do it, and the result of that is we get more voices and more choices. So I'm glad whenever anybody runs for office. I wish there were a 1,000 candidates running for everything, okay? That being said, I'm going to spend no more than 10 minutes on this because I think that's about what Governor Chris Christie's candidacy is worth. Chris Christie whose presidential campaign, as you just heard there yesterday, the, the joke that it was. Now, and again, I've, I've voted for many long-shot candidates, including people that have gotten less than 1% of, a, of the vote. So I don't think not getting a lot of votes, not getting a lot of support, makes you a joke. I think the way that Chris Christie ran this campaign is a joke. Chris Christie, his campaign is over. In my view, and there's a reason that I want to mention this, Chris Christie is the personification of everything that is wrong with government and that's wrong with politics. He is a terrible, terrible representative of 21st century American politics. Now, I don't even know where to begin with him. 
For starters, you know, everyone complains about money in politics. Not everyone. I certainly do. About the role of special interests and uh, uh, fundraising and the big money in politics and how the people that uh, have the gold make the rules, the reverse golden rule. Chris Christie would not exist but for being a byproduct of money. Now, how did Chris Christie get his start? Now, a lot of you probably know that before he was governor, he was the U.S. attorney. Okay, we'll talk about that. But before that, what was he? He was a Morris County freeholder that ran for state assembly in a Republican primary in New Jersey and was destroyed. He was destroyed in that state assembly for a state assembly primary. He got 15% of the vote. Didn't not not only did he not finish second, he didn't finish third. He finished fourth in that race. But he still had his freeholder seat. Maybe he could do something there. First of all, I think it always tells you something when somebody takes an oath to do a job and instead of doing that job, they look for a better job in politics and look to run and campaign for something else. But everybody does that. I'm not going to pick too much on Chris Christie for that. Then After losing a state assembly Republican primary, he loses re-election, not to a Democrat, but to other Republicans. He finishes fifth in a fifth-person race. Couldn't even get re-nominated to re-election as a Morris County freeholder. It tells you the people that knew him best knew him best. So why did he, like most people that would lose their own primary for re-election, why did he not just fade into obscurity? Why do we know who Chris Christie is? Well, Chris Christie and his father and his brother and his wife understood the most important thing about 20th century American politics, and it's one of the most important things about 21st century American politics. Money. Money. And... Chris Christie's brother, who was super wealthy, became a ranger for George W. Bush when he was running for president. Raised a ton of money for George W. Bush, literally millions. Donated a ton of money. Christie's father donated a ton of money. Christie's father raised a ton of money. Christie's wife, who does very well, she donated a ton of money all to George W. Bush. They were placing their bets, just like I would when I'm trying to hedge at the craps table. You you go on the come, you go on the field, and you play, play the point. That's what Christie did. They put all their chips in on George W. Bush, and wouldn't you know it, George Bush won. And the only thing the Christie's wanted was for Chris Christie to be appointed the U.S. attorney. Now, that's the nature of politics. That's the nature of government. You pay, and then you get a little something. This was his reward for all the money that the Christie's had given George W. Bush. I think, as U.S. attorney for the state of New Jersey, the guy was a total embarrassment. Chris Christie, who had no experience with criminal law prior to becoming the U.S. attorney, but okay, that happens a lot with U.S. attorneys. The only thing he was interested in was grandstanding. He would take the cases that would get him the most publicity. And when someone was indicted, like Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner's father, or Sharp James, when someone high profile, they would indict. Chris Christie wouldn't just indict them. Christie would embarrass them. 
he would go out of their way to um, call them a scourge, to say how we hope he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life, go out of his way to leak damaging information that destroys people's families. He was the worst type of prosecutor, a prosecutor that skirts due process, a prosecutor that that treats indictments like convictions, and a prosecutor that didn't get there on the merits, that didn't get there because he was elected, that got there because of who his father is, who his brother is, and who they gave money to. So he uses this platform as the U.S. attorney to become governor of New Jersey. The guy was a terrible governor of New Jersey. He was not a mediocre governor of New Jersey. He was not an okay governor of New Jersey. He was a terrible governor of New Jersey. From trying to, um, you know, from screwing up the race to the top funding for education in New Jersey to taking pennies on the dollar for settlements for these companies that had ecologically raped New Jersey from Bridgegate to bail reform to you go down the list the to the pensions. Let's not even get into the pensions to the level of political deal making, which would have made the uh, insidiest of Washington insiders blush. The guy was not a good governor. You have the Bridgegate situation and everything else. Not a good governor at all. Okay. He also believes in absolutely nothing. He is devoid of any sort of principles, which is a great thing. Because when you have no principles, you're not burdened by them. You can do whatever it takes to win. You can do whatever it takes to suit your short-term political interests. So you saw in 2016, Chris Christie railing against Donald Trump about how what a terrible president that he'd be. And then, as soon as he drops out and reads the political tea leaves, just like he did in 2000, and sees Donald Trump is going to win, he then becomes the first governor in America to endorse Donald Trump. Well, where's that for principles? Now, this guy, Donald Trump, who uh, gave every indication of having the kind of problems behaviorally and psychologically that Chris Christie's been talking about for the last year, those were all on display in 2016. Why'd you support him? Well, we know why you supported him. Because you wanted a job. You wanted to get rich, again, through government. So he gets put in charge of opioids. He gets a couple of other lucrative appointments in the lucrative, not in terms of financially, but in terms of status in the Trump administration. And then, and this is just one of the worst things about people in politics. He does what Nikki Haley does. He uses his position with the public trust to make money for himself. He uses the fact that he legalized sports betting in New Jersey and around the country with that Supreme Court case. He uses that to make millions from companies that benefit from sports gambling, DraftKings, FanDuel, millions. But he also uses the position he got with the Trump administration, the opioid epidemic czar. Meanwhile, the opioid epidemic is worse than ever, by the way. Thank you, Chris Christie. He uses that to make money for himself consulting for drug companies. I mean, the guy has no problem showing fealty to Donald Trump when it suits him and making money for himself off of that access to Donald Trump. And then when Trump uh, loses the 2020 election, he's the first one off the bus. 
and then stakes his whole candidacy, which, shockingly, had a lot to do with him selling books, hiring his friends as his campaign operatives, making them rich in the process, and jacking up the price of his per-speaker fee, and you can bet he's going to be getting another lucrative gig as a media commentator, as he did with ABC News, uses this whole candidacy, at which nobody ever thought he had a chance to win, as nothing but a Trump-bashing fest to sell books, to get on television, to raise money from anti-Trump donors, and to enrich his friends. To me, he's the worst thing in American politics. Not he, he's not alone, by the way. There's a lot of people that do what Chris Christie does. But to me, from top to, oh, and let's not even talk about the level of loyalty and disloyalty. What was his reward to Donald Trump for Trump allowing uh, Chris Christie to get rich through um, the political connections that he had through the Trump administration? Well, it was to bash him at every turn. If that meant selling a book, if that meant getting on television, the man is totally devoid of principles. Good speaker, smart guy. He is, and a hard worker. The man believes in nothing. The man has no loyalty. The man has made himself rich through politics and government. Not a good governor. A bully. Mean-spirited. I, look, I'm all for everybody running. To me, the fewer people like Chris Christie that are in politics, the better the country is. I think we need more people, uh, more principled people in politics, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. People like Bernie Sanders, for instance, principled as can be. I could use a few more Bernie Sanders or a, uh, a Rand Paul on the right. Bernie Sanders on the left, Rand Paul on the right. People that you know where their principles are. They don't begin and end with a $100 bill. Their loyalty is not totally transactional based on money. Here's a little bit of this uh, Chris Christie dropout speech. Donald Trump wants you to be angry every day because he's angry. He wants you to be angry so that you'll relate to his anger and then to vote for him. Please understand this. I have known him well for 22 years more than anybody else in this race has known him. And I can promise you this, if you put him back behind the desk in the Oval Office and a choice comes and a decision is needed to be made as to whether he puts himself first or he puts you first, how much more evidence do you need he will pick himself. Uh, he's also a sore loser. Have I mentioned that? Uh, by the way, I'm going to make another guarantee here, or a prediction, not a guarantee, it's a prediction, that as soon as Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party or poised to be the nominee, especially if he's still leading in the polls, Chris Christie will enthusiastically endorse him. Enthusiastically. One of the people that really summed up Chris Christie well is Atlantic County Executive Denny Levinson. I was interviewing Denny Levinson a year or two ago, and um, he's the Atlantic County executive, Republican, was the Atlantic County executive the entire time Chris Christie was governor. And I asked him a question about bail reform. Listen to his response. I think he really has Chris Christie down to a T. 
the uh, by the way, with this bail reform issue really hits home with me as a New Yorker because uh, what New York did was much further along the line of recklessness than what even New Jersey did. But you have even folks like Governor Chris Christie who was or was pushing that bail reform initially, who are saying that New Jersey did it right. You're saying after a few years of watching how it's worked out, at least as it relates to Atlantic County, New Jersey did not do it right. Whatever. Chris Christie says it fits him at the time. Follow him around. I'll never support Donald Trump. First guy that jumped on the bandwagon for Donald Trump was Chris Christie. Oh, by the way, the first guy to jump off the bandwagon for Donald Trump and the most critical uh, is Chris Christie and immediately goes to work for ABC News and is on a panel. Now, he ruined this state when he was here for eight years. He ruined the Republican Party, spent all his time trying to become president of the United States, and left the uh, – and see you later. I'm, I want to – and Donald Trump understood him after he met him for a while and understood you're not becoming vice president. You're not going to become my attorney general because I can't trust you. And Donald Trump was right. Now, you'd think – okay, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say because, uh, again, I, I don't want to – I don't want to – make anyone's reward for dipping their toe into the political arena and not being successful, that they get bashed by people who are comfortably um, sitting in the critics circle because who needs that? Last thing I'll say, you'd think if you were Chris Christie and you claim that your big goal is beating Donald Trump now that you'd unite behind the one person that seems to be the leading anti-Trump candidate right now. That's Nikki Haley. He was caught on a hot mic saying what he really thinks about Nikki Haley. This is Christie. Remember what I said about him being a sore loser? Caught on a hot mic when he thought no one was listening. People don't want to hear it, Wayne. They don't want to hear it. We know we're right, but they don't want to hear it. Right. And, and there's, you know, we couldn't have been any clearer. Right. We couldn't have been any more, any more direct or worked any harder. So, and you know. forget she spent $68 million. Yeah. I mean, Oh. Well, when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's gonna, what you get. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV. Spent $68 million so far, $59 million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked, and you and I both know it. She's not up to this. And she's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's going to—he's still going to carry Iowa, right? Yes. Oh, he's—I t- you know, talked to De- DeSantis called me, petrified that I would. He's probably getting out after Iowa. Well, now, let's talk about that. All of a sudden, Chris Christie is concerned about what people are spending in politics. The man who he and his brother were rangers for George W. Bush, who helped raise him millions, who got his job through the money political industrial complex. He's concerned about what other people are spending. What you hear here is the last gasp of political breath of a sore loser. Again, this is a man who's intelligent, who speaks well who's quick on his feet, but he's a sore loser, loyal to no one, not an effective governor, believes in nothing. Good riddance. This is the last time, I hope, throughout the campaign to mention Chris Christie. Oh, one good point about this. I win a bet from my brother. I win a free dinner 
with my brother Alexander. We had a bet that he bet me that Chris Christie would actually be the Republican nominee. And I gave him either, I think, 10 to 1 odds or 100 to 1 odds. I said I would buy him 10 dinners or 20 dinners, whatever I agreed to. I don't even know. Maybe even 1,000. I said I would buy him 1,000 dinners in exchange for the one that he would have to buy me. And I am looking forward to that uh, free dinner. So, Chris, there you have it. I'm the big winner in this whole thing. All right. 800-848-9222. I could use a little grammar discussion. I could use a lot of help with my grammar, to be honest. But first, let me take at least one quick call. People are kind enough to uh, call in here. Rose is uh, calling from Long Island. Hi, Rose. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just want to tell you that your opening remarks about Christy were absolutely brilliant. And it's the first time I smiled today. So thank you. Well, that's awfully nice of you, Rose. Try and smile more. I appreciate that. Andrew, what's on your mind? Frank, good morning. morning. So Chris Christie, okay, I have to believe deep down when he's at home with his... He's got conservative views. I'm not, I'm not going to say he's ultra conservative. I'm just going to say he's he's conservative. What I don't get, Frankie, I want you to explain to me. You know who Jeff Van Drew is. I sure. admire this guy. Me too. Immensely because of his uh, his move over to the right. Well, I, I, I admire him. Just I liked him even when he was a Democrat too. But um, but go ahead, finish your thought. Because well, he was yeah. Sure. So. I guess really what I don't get is, so I, I have a, uh, my, my job, I have a 40, 50% uh, African-American uh, workforce. I can't tell you how many of them have moved over to the right. Jewish friends of mine, same thing. Where I'm going with this is you would figure there would be more Jeff Finjrews. First of all, uh, financially, it would benefit them, you know, or, you know, a journalist, Let's say uh, I'm not going to say Jake Tapper is going. Jake Tapper is going to turn around and become a conservative, but you you figured you would see more, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Deflections, move, just movements over to conservatism. I don't get it. So when you take a guy like Chris Christie, what is his what is his goal? I mean, does he want to see the country sink? That's uh, what I don't no, get. So, I, again, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, the fact that he torched Haley so much in private, and thanks for the call, Andrew, it tells you that it's all about him. You know, um, if you look at their views on every issue, not every domestic issue, not every foreign policy issue, every issue, Nikki Haley, at least every important issue, Nikki Haley is has identical views to Chris Christie. He should be her biggest cheerleader right now. If he's really concerned about Trump winning, because there's really a battle within the GOP right now. You have the kind of the populist wing uh, consisting of regular rank and file working class minded people. And then you have the wing of people that make money from pushing money around people that have gotten rich by, um, you know, not by making anything, not by producing anything, not by growing anything, but just selling things that other people have already made. And Chris Christie and Nikki Haley are absolutely in alignment. And the fact that that's what he's saying about Nikki Haley in private tells you everything you need to know about him. What Chris Christie's goal is is twofold, threefold, maybe. One, to be famous. Two, to be rich. Three, to be powerful. So he is going to try to use this to sell more books, to get another lucrative media gig, and to position himself to run for office again in the future or for a cabinet post in the next administration. Doesn't matter if the next administration is Trump, Haley, or Biden. He will find a way to try and make a case to get a cabinet position. That's it. I am done discussing Chris Christie. All sold American. I am just beginning. 
or have I just begun to discuss grammar? Have you ever wondered about the difference between farther and further? Have you ever wondered about the difference between um, when you're supposed to use two spaces after a period? And what is an Oxford comma anyway? Well, you are in luck because we have our very own grammarian angel. Ellen Joven joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. of midnight i'm frank morano i am someone that loves an appropriate usage of the word whom i am someone who frequently though makes the mistake of using effect when i really mean to be using effect i don't think i'm alone here and that's why people like ellen jovin exist uh, to help People like me, because not only does she know the rules, she has an enthusiasm for the rules. Now, who's Ellen Joven? Ellen Joven is an internationally acclaimed language and grammar expert whose latest book is Rebel with a Clause, Tales and Tips from a Roving Grammarian. She's our very own grammarian angel, and uh, I have been enjoying this book for the last few days. It is not only incredibly useful, incredibly helpful, and helps you memorize a lot of these rules which you probably forgot about in elementary school, but it's actually very entertaining, uh, especially at parts as well. Ellen Joven, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. 
Thank you, Frank. This is a lot of pressure to be called an angel. I'm going to be on my best behavior now. <laughs> well, you know, it's after midnight. You don't have to be too good. Trust me. Believe me, I'm not. Uh, Ellen, so you write in your introduction when you're describing the, the grammar table, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, you actually say the words, I love grammar. Now, to me, grammar has always been something that you have to deal with. It's a necessary evil. It's something that you suffer through in order not to get a failing grade in the uh, in middle school. How did you come to actually love grammar? I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't love words. And I think maybe I need to answer that question by considering what, for me, grammar is. It's not just a series of commandments that you break or you don't. It's, you know, you get in trouble if you break them. It's not like that. It's more about understanding the the fabric and the structure of the language that we use every day. I mean, you're using language on this show and you seem to get, I've been listening to you, you seem to get a real kick out of it and enjoy the way, you know, enjoy wielding words. So that to me is grammar the the art that comes out of the words that we use. All right. So a lot of this deals with, and I know you've been so associated with something called the grammar table. Fill folks in. What's the grammar table? Well, in the summer of 2018, I was getting sick of being on my computer so much because a lot of my, I write a lot and a lot of my work is on the computer. I belonged to all these online language nerd groups and they were, I found that I was just looking at a screen too many, too many hours a day. And I thought, well, I could do something very similar to what I'm doing online, but in the street. And I live in I live in Manhattan, so there's a lot of foot traffic. So I just ordered a table and drew a sign that said grammar table and literally went outside my building. Uh, I live near a subway, uh, an express subway stop and just started answering people's grammar questions. I love it. At what? And maybe this is a little bit of an unfair question. It's kind of like asking, what's your favorite movie, or who's the most interesting guest you've ever had on the radio? But what was the most common grammar question that you got at the grammar table? Oh, well, there's a clear winner for that. Okay. I have no trouble answering that question. The most common by far, probably many multiples of the second most popular question, is what I think about the Oxford comma. So uh, remind folks, what is the Oxford comma? Is that what my fourth grade teacher used to call the optional comma, which goes, which you can either use or not use right around the word end or or? That sounds like the same thing. Yeah. So when you have a list, it's just, it's specifically before that conjunction, the and or the or at the end of a, of a list, whether you put it or not, is a big um, is is of great interest to many Americans. I'm actually really impressed, by the way, that your teacher included or in that in that um, category because often people forget about it. But or is often used in lists. So what hardly is, anyone ever mentions that to me. Well, no, Mr. Zinn was on his uh, A game. He knew about his Oxford comma. <laughs> so so what is the story with the Oxford comma? Are we supposed to use it? Or are we supposed to not use it? Uh, I think we can all do what we want and get along. Um, if we, you know, like in work, if you're working with a team at work, it's probably good if you agree for your formal documents, what you do in them, because consistency is nice. And because people are so fixated on that comma in the United States, I feel like it, it just gets disproportionate attention if you're not consistent. 
But even, let's say, even if you are, if you decide, your team decides not to use it, what I think people screw up on is not putting it in when it's necessary for clarity. And sometimes it is like you can't mm. really tell where the end of the second to last item is. And so I think people are a little too obsessed with consistency at the expense of clarity. You actually refer to the Oxford comma as a national obsession. <laughs> is, it, is that yeah. an exaggeration at all? Or is it really? I would never exaggerate about grammar. Um, no, I really don't think so because almost every time I go out, I'm asked about it. I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot of times I've been asked about it, hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of times by now. You recount a, a story where you're interacting with some other people, I think it was on Halloween, in which you all share your, um, your love of grammar and how uh, one person that you encountered says that they, they'd like to get better at it. And I'd like to understand grammar more, as Susan, who you write about, said as well. Um, how does one begin the process without going, signing up for a remedial English course Except of course, you know. Except of course, by uh, buying your book. How do you begin the process of improving your grammar and making sure you're doing the right thing? Well, I, I, one thing that always concerns me when I hear about the right thing, I think there are a lot of, a lot of um, ideas floating around on, you know, on the internet and other places in conversations about what's right and what's wrong. And there's a lot more language variety than a lot of people think there is. So I. Um, you know, I, occasionally I'll do something and and uh, on and I'll tweet something and people say, oh, you're not allowed to do that, blah, blah, blah. But you are. And so I think I would be more interested. Yes, of course, I would love if people read my book. That would be great. And I'm and it's meant to make grammar fun. But I think the best way to be better at language generally, the way you use it, the creativity, the range of expression is to read a lot. And when I say read a lot, to read good stuff, not, you know, not <laughs> perfectly mm. not lousy writing, but good stuff where people maybe um, writers get you to think about new ways to use language that you haven't been haven't been doing so far. That also could apply to speech. I mean, if you listen to people who are good speakers, that can be inspiring about how you how you express yourself orally. So you uh, weave together a lot of stories and a lot of tips. And if people are just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with Ellen uh, Joven. She is an internationally acclaimed grammar expert. Her latest book is Rebel with a Clause, Tales and Tips from a Roving Grammarian. Um, if someone were to, you know, if you were to um, share a language tip that's unconventional, but incredibly effective, something rebels with a clause might embrace, what would you suggest? <laughs> okay, wait, what are my criteria? Something Unconventional, that's... but effective. A language tip that oh, is a man. little offbeat, but that's, that gets the job done. That's effective. I don't know. At 1.40 a.m., I don't know if I'm going to be able to fulfill both of those categories. <laughs> but may I point out something that you did earlier oh, that my. people okay. sometimes, jump, sure. sometimes jump on me about? No, so it's not a criticism. You started out saying something like, this is a very important principle to me, Frank. I really want to make this point because it really is is dear to my heart. You said something like, I'm someone that wants to, I don't know, know more about grammar or needs to, something like that. When I do that, you so you use someone with you used 
that right after someone. Right, I should have been who? Know, so it was a person that used that. So a lot of people think you can't do that. Oh. But you really can. And it's not, they think it's you know, that using that with a human is objectifying, but it's, you can find it throughout literature. And this is why for me, it's really important. Literature comes first and the grammar, my understanding of language comes out of art. It doesn't come out of uh, a list of annoying rules that limit how I express myself. So I am pointing this out to say that that is fine. I bet you oh. have listeners who would object to I, it. I, I'm sure I got five I, emails complaining here, already. That's great. I, I am here. I am here to have your back about it. I and this. I really believe in that point. I may even put a chapter about that. Not that specific, specific example. Well, maybe you have maybe absolutely my example. permission. We'll get you. A, okay. In, in my no next problem. book. <laughs> um, now the title of your book, it does suggest, a certain rebellious spirit when it comes to grammar. Can you elaborate on this and, and explain why being a grammar rebel can be a positive thing? <laughs> well, I think that ties in with the themes I've been bringing up. Mm -hmm. um, but I uh, let's see. Yeah, people play with language. They break they break language traditions all the time to, to have an effect. I mean, that's a lot with slang. We're using words in new and innovative ways. Um, so there's not a, there's not like a, an, a single correct way to do things. Now there are things that are better than other things. I mean, we've all read terrible writing that has all kinds of clarity problems. You can't figure out what's going on. And it, I, it's, it's definitely our responsibility as writers and as communicators, if we want to have an effect to be as clear as we possibly can. A lot of that does come from grammar, how you arrange the words and how they relate to each other and whether they relate to, to one another clearly. Um, and now I've totally lost my point. Um, what was my point? Can you steer me back to my well, point, Well, I was just asking about why a uh, being a grammar oh, rebel, rebel can be positive. The rebel thing. Yeah, I mean, I think <sighs> I have occasionally had a complaint or two here and there that I'm not rebellious enough, you know? I mean, but I think I think compared to how <laughs> I, I feel like I'm doing, I'm doing my job okay that way. I'm not worried about it. But I think um, there are people who really are constrained by the set of rules that they remember or think they remember. That's another thing that's kind of funny about this. People sometimes misremember what they learned when they were, were 10. Our memories are not perfect. So they remember this list of things and then they feel oppressed by them for the rest of their lives. You know, like you can't end a sentence with a preposition. So that I say, free yourself of that and you will feel, be able to express yourself more naturally. I wouldn't say that's the book I was telling you about. I mean, I would say mm. that's the book I was telling you about. I wouldn't say that is the book about which I was telling you. <laughs> 11 years ago, I read a book and I interviewed the author. He, he passed away. I don't know if you've read it, but it was called Yes, I Could Care Less, How to Be a Language Snob Without Being a Jerk. And it was by a fellow named Bill Walsh, who was a veteran copywriter. And he goes through all these ways to try to correct people's grammar without being a jerk, just like the title says. I'm curious where you come down on the etiquette of correcting someone's grammar or word usage. If you're in conversation with someone, whether it's a, a, a friend, a, a boyfriend, a, a girlfriend, a, a husband, um, a parent, do you correct them if they're saying something that is grammatically incorrect? No, I don't. I mean, I might. No, no, I don't. Um, and by the way, Bill Walsh is one of the, the 
great editors. I really regret never having had a chance to meet. I love his whole way of being. I love his the, his philosophy of language. And um, so I'm very happy that you, what great taste you have to have interviewed him. He he's really he's he struck me, strikes me as a really special person. And I know a lot of people now who miss him, um, who knew him and miss him a great deal. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think, first of all, it's really rude. You know, mm -hmm. you're in a social right. situation, you just suddenly start telling someone they're wrong. But you know, what's weird also about that? So many of the people who think it's their, uh, their duty um, to tell people what's correct and what's incorrect, they're often wrong. Mm. They often correct people incorrectly. They have a, it's, they're relying on their memory of rules or, um, which is imperfect, or maybe they just have formed language opinions that aren't accurate. And so, so, so I give find me an that, example. I'm sorry to interrupt. Okay. But give me an example of no. uh, some, a common correction that's actually an incorrection. Well, the, the, that thing, the, the very restrictive uh -huh. notion of what that can do would be an example. You see it with who and whom. Sometimes people will use whom where it's really mm. a who, um, that's kind of, and that's kind of annoying. I don't know if people are snobby about that one. Let's see. What else do they do? Oh, well, something like farther and further, mm. which have been used further has been used for distance for for forever, you know, so, so the, the, the distinction that people tell you, oh, you have to use farther for distance and further for something that's more ethereal or metaphorical, you know, I need to study that matter, matter further. That distinction really doesn't coincide with what language use has been historically. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you could distinguish, but it's not like people get mad about it. They get really angry. It's not something to be mad about. I actually like further for distance. It just feels, it seems easier to pronounce. So it seems like based on what you're saying with that further and farther, that they're almost interchangeable. They are. You don't, you don't, you don't hear people, you, you hear people use further in cases where often your advice to use farther. You don't see the reverse though. Like you don't hear people say, I need to study that matter farther, you know? So it's <laughs> right. a one way, right. a one way interaction. But I mean, think about it. It's just this little vowel sound. We decide what words mean. It's not. It's not handed to us on a stone tablet by divinities. Well, so, I, so I love it's that you so said funny that. Funny to me. I, I love that you said that because um, I, I always try to kind of create new words, right, and get them popularized for words that don't yet for for descriptions that don't have a meaning yet. But um, for instance, <laughs> I am trying to get the ball rolling on the popularization of the word irregardless, a portmanteau of the words irrespective and regardless. But I am fighting a losing battle here. I'm, I'm Sisyphus pu pushing this rock up the hill and I'm not having any luck. Is there anything you could do for me on irregardless? <laughs> well, that word really has been, irregardless has been used for a long time. Centur there, it goes back centuries, I think. So I, I, I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't use it, but I, I, it certainly has has um you have antecedents you have you have noble antecedents in using it and i can't get excited about it you know what you should have whenever you have to list hobbies anywhere i don't know if this comes up for you but you should put there neologizing since you like to invent new words do you know that that one is if your listeners don't know that word neologism is a new coinage but i like to i i kind of make jokes about neologizing 
that's the verb. I like that. I, I will just think it's fun. I will. I will use that one. That's a good one. Um, in, in, in seriously though, in the with the rise of digital communication that we've seen, how do you think technology has impacted language use, and and what challenges or even what opportunities does that present for uh, effective communication? It does often move things along faster. I'm not an expert on some of the some of the specifics of that, but I can give you an example from my own life. Do you remember back in the day when email used to be a hyphenated word? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so, but it closed up eventually in most places, there are mm-hmm. still publications that will put the hyphen in, but for the most part, it's, it's been dehyphenated and closed. I had to do, I had to close it before I was ready because mm. I teach email etiquette classes. And so um, when people were searching online for email email classes, they were taking out the hyphens and it was dinging me in the search results. You know what I mean? So I had to get with the program and pull it out. Um, And I was a little bit troubled by that. I know that sounds weird now, but this was a lot, this was 20 years ago, maybe. So, so I was still in the editorial world. Almost everyone was still hyphenating it. And I just found that interesting. So I was, I was pressured I was pressured by search. I, I like that. Engines. You also have a uh, an inst- interesting chapter that has to do with uh, you being a sentimental speller. I like to think I'm a, a sentimental speller from time to time. I'll include the the um, U in labor. I'll, I'll include an H in whiskey from time to time. What are you sentimental about spelling? I have well I think most of the most of the sentiment for me is is nostalgia about the experience of learning spelling because it was such a a rich tactile um thing for me in school we had to do these lists where we would co- we would get a new word list every week which I assume is pretty common in a lot of schools but we would have to copy each word over maybe it was 15 words each word over 3 times day after day until you know till the end of the week then we get a quiz on it but there's something about that i felt it was almost like a communion with the words and i got really fascinated with how dark i would write or light or how you know how big my like i really experimented with my handwriting and i felt just the the writing you know writing by hand as opposed to a computer that for me that gave it, it feels like it gave me a, a feeling hmm. for the word I like and i that. still connect to that emotionally when you send an SMS text message, do you follow the same rules of grammar that you do if you are sending an email, if you're sending a personal letter? Where does texting fall into the grammar equation, at least in your world? Well, I don't use texting for work things usually, but my texts are, and I hope this won't disillusion anyone, my texts are catastrophes. They're, really? They're, no, forget Forget the punctuation, the capitalization. No, because I'm sending so many and I just, I just, I I just, they, I don't know. There's something freeing about it with, with someone who's a friend. If I'm texting a friend and maybe they're a writer where they, I find a lot of writers aren't that careful with their texts. They're clear. It's not that they're unclear, but they don't worry that much about Mm. convention. Although I have to say, probably the majority of my peers, um, people my age um, who grew up before the age of ubiquitous um, personal computers and definitely before phones, I think a lot of them do write in complete sentences Mm. with punctuation. 
All right, uh, Ellen Joven, we're going to have to end it there. I want to encourage folks to check out your book, Rebel with a Clause, Tales and, Cli- uh, Tales and Tips from a Roving Grammarian. I hope we can talk again. Thank you. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. If you have uh, a comment based on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. And you're welcome to use further instead of farther or vice versa. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey girl, what you doing down there? Dancing alone every night while I live right above you. I can hear your music playing. One floor below me, you don't even know me, I love you Oh my darling, not three times on the ceiling if you want me Times Tony Orlando and Dawn, to be precise. You know, we're overdue for a uh, conversation with Tony Orlando. I'm going to reach out to him, see if he wants to come on um, maybe next week. You know, he's doing this whole farewell tour now. He's promoting his last show at Mohegan Sun. He's promoting his last show in Atlantic City. We'll have him on. Um, there's always a lot to talk to Tony Orlando about. He's, he's just one of my favorites. And I was watching a movie. I'll talk about it later if time permits. I was watching a uh, movie with my wife last night. It's called uh, The Holdovers. I don't know if you've seen it. But they there's a scene where they have uh, that song, this song that you just heard in the film, which is just wonderful. All right, 800-848-9222. Going to get to your calls in a second. You know, I was looking at my, um, when I was getting, I was brushing my son's teeth today, and I've noticed, you, you remember about six months ago, maybe less, maybe five months ago, when I described how we were at the playground and he tripped on some leaves and he hit his chin on the metal slide and then started bleeding. And you know the bleeding stopped after a few minutes. Uh, he still got a scar underneath his chin from that injury at the playground. Now, it's been five or six months now, I would have hoped. Now, I guess in the prism of hindsight, looks like maybe we should have taken him to the doctor to get stitches or something. But I would have hoped that that would have gone away by now, but it hasn't. So I'm wondering, I mean, he's only two. I'm wondering if that scar under his chin is now going to be with him for life or if that will go away in, I don't know, a few months, a few years, something. 
If not, I w- I'm going to have to come up, w- help him concoct a really interesting story about how he got that scar to make him sound tough when he becomes more interested in girls later in life. So, all right, uh, those of you that are on hold, I will get to you. 800-848-9222, still to come. Brian Kilmeade is here. We're going to chat with him about the news of the day, and there's quite a bit of news, isn't there? Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.